Welcome to the Absolute Purpose Project, a podcast series by Absolute PR and Marketing that investigates inspiring and enlightening individuals, brands, and organizations that focus on purpose as a force for good. In our podcast series, we will explore the best ways of communicating purpose through the eyes of some of the UK's most inspirational communicators and their compelling and often quirky stories. The Absolute Purpose Project is an extension of the work the agency has been doing for the last 20 years in guiding brands to deliver environmental and social impact through action, innovation and communication. Till the Coast is Clear is a community interest company striving to make the world a better place, one piece of plastic at a time. Regenerating places and people by clearing shorelines of plastic pollution using recyclable boats and a fleet of kayaks made from recycled fishing nets, all crewed by volunteers from all walks of life. The foundation of Till the Coast is Clear is rooted in Norway, where Gary Jolliffe, our guest and company founder, grew up. A place so cool that even 40 years ago, they had underfloor heating, automated recycling and bottle return schemes as standard. Welcome, Gary. How are you? Hello, Jenny. I'm very well, thanks for asking. How are you? Yeah, I think I'm doing okay, just about. Great. So, Gary, I just want to um, kick off by asking you about a little bit about Norway, really, because, you know, as we know, Norway is at the really at the cutting edge of sustainability. So I just wanted to uh, ask you, in your opinion, what are the most pressing policies or should we say ideas the UK could learn from Norway? Sure. So, well, Norway and Scandinavia in general are, as is often the case, they are at the cutting edge of many things, including, it would seem, renewable energy and sensible use of their resources and everything else. But I think a bit of background on Norway is required to give it context because Norway, of course, is a stunningly beautiful place. I was fortunate enough to grow up there as a child and, and had an amazing time. It's still, you know, is very much part of my sort of DNA. Now I remember it very, very fondly. And, um, but, you know, I was very fortunate. My dad, almost ironically, was involved in the oil and gas industry, which, of course, is where Norway's great wealth um, comes from. And prior to North Sea oil and gas, Norway was relatively relatively poor compared to how it is now and it certainly wasn't the sort of you know powerhouse of of contemporary design and <laughs> and all things cool that Scandinavia is now and I think it's worth that's the, the key point is that Norway has such an enormous sovereign wealth fund um, and such a tiny population in in relative terms to its area that it's it's much easier for them to do things at scale and I think to make sensible decisions around the environment and the, and the way they generate and use energy that it is for countries such as ours with a ma- much, much bigger population density, which I know does bring advantages too in terms of disp- distribution and everything else. But it's, I think the key point is that Norway have had the, the benefit of that massive wealth to, to use to develop. That's certainly a good point. Yeah, and of course the geography also lends itself so well to hydroelectric, which, which um, ours does not so readily. So they've had that key advantage too. So anything that you think that we as a country could learn though from Norway and something that we could actually do or ideas that we could take from them? I mean I'm no expert you know that's that's probably the first thing I should absolutely make clear I'm just someone who takes a very keen interest in all of this and finds it fascinating and 
on this subject, perhaps we should hark back to your to your humble beginnings in in Norway and what actually led you to 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 sort of start till the coast is clear. There was a pivotal trip, wasn't there? Yeah, that was that was in South America in Chile, actually, twenty or so years ago. But um, no, I suppose, yeah, I mean, you're right in so far that Norway, even when I was five or six, I can remember that it was just very well organised and there were sensible buildings for the climate that they were built in and everything was done with a lot of consideration and thought and done properly first time round. So you, d- you didn't see um, crazy design or inappropriate design. You used to see appropriate design for, for what the object was supposed to achieve. And, you know, literally 40, 45 years ago, we're talking about a place where the machine would gladly suck back in your recycling, your week's recycling and give you a, a little ticket, which you could take to the till and cash in for cash or in exchange for goods. And we're still struggling to achieve anything like that here in the UK now, um, which, which, you know, beggars belief, I think. Um, But in terms of, in terms of the energy stuff, I mean, it strikes me that Norway's become, because of its geography, it's easy to produce energy um, in many respects, but it's obviously much more difficult to distribute it because of its, because of its geography as well, fjords and mountains and all the rest of it. So I think, what we need to learn over here is our reliance on a on a national grid is probably a th- should be a thing of the past, and we should be looking at you know sort of more micro distribution. You know, the, the energy should be produced more local to where it's used, so that we don't we cut down on losses and we cut down on infrastructure and pylons and horrible things crisscrossing our countryside. And now that we have this ability to you know generate renewables so efficiently, and that's coming becoming better all the time then we we all, all the folk i talk to who take an interest in this who who are more expert mm. are of the opinion that we should be generating energy closer to its usage point and we won't get into the nuclear question because that's i think that could, can be a bit messy sure yeah i hear you perhaps we should be looking at doing everything closer to home than we have done before hey well absolutely quite right indeed yeah i think I mean, isn't it great in so many ways? There's so many positive things happening. There is, there is definitely an awakening. And I think it's fair to say that it you know, came off the back of the epidemic and folk oh. just started thinking, hey, what can we do to make things better? And yeah, I know I'm really, I'm, I'm quite buoyed up and quite positive about, you know, the amount of things I'm seeing and hearing about and actually physically witnessing that are happening, Brilliant. that are positive. So there's a lot, there's a lot to be... Um, positive about sure so obviously it's in the title purpose purpose is what we're really wanting to hone in on by this podcast so one of the questions i have for you is you know as a human being what do you see as your purpose i consider myself very fortunate um, although it's taken me quite some time to reach a, a point where i feel i am truly plugged into a purpose i mean i've t- i've Consider this and I think the only way I can distill it down into simple terms is just you know is basically to leave it better is to is to try and associate yourself mm-hmm. with you know something that's legacy is going to be one of improvement and one of positive change I've tried lots of different things in my I wouldn't describe it as a career in my lifetime mm. till now and um yeah I mean the ones that weren't connected to some form of obvious purpose with tangible measurable kind of ah you know that's cool that's better like planting a tree or you know clearing up a beach of plastic that's those are things you can see and feel and smell and touch it's an improvement once you've done it that gives me purpose that that's 
what I would want to be plugged into from now on. Sure. And so I think uh, we were actually tapping into it just a moment ago in the wrong place, but I just wonder if you could tell us about that South American tipping point that you experienced and tell, tell the listener a little bit about that, the Patagonia trip. Sure, thanks, yeah. So, yes, it was, again, some time ago now because I've reached a relatively ripe age. And, yeah, I was on an amazing trip with Rally International, the um, youth development charity. And it was a trip of a lifetime to help guide the youngsters on sea kayaking adventures in the Chilean archipelagos in the, in the fjords um, down wow. south. Yeah, it, you know, just phenomenal. So yeah, to set the scene, we were we were taking the groups out, fantastic groups of youngsters, you know, about twenty at a time, and there was myself and the lead guide, the leader who was an amazing guy, and and a doctor with us as well, and they were all in double kayaks, we were in singles, and we just went on these fantastic adventures, and yeah, I mean, it was it was supposed to be pristine wow. wilderness, but what became apparent very quickly was that it was not pristine although it was fairly wild and remote, um, because every time we pulled ashore, and I don't think we ever pulled ashore anywhere without this being a problem, the back of the beach, the strand line, if you like, was always covered in plastic pollution. And the source of the plastic pollution was very, very obviously the aquaculture fisheries industry. I, I haven't double-checked this, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but I, I've got a feeling Chile have come down really quite hard on this industry and I, I certainly think they've not been renewing licenses and I think they've even you know started to shut the industry down in their fields in recognition of the environmental degradation that's you know the, the, the legacy of them unfortunately these fish farms but anyway yeah we literally had to bag up you know armfuls of, of welly boots um, jerry cans of fuel and overalls and um, syringes because they put um, antibiotics in the water that they did in those days and yeah just when you tuck into a succulent piece of salmon um, you know for all its supposed health benefits when you see the mess that it causes in producing it you, you I think you really do genuinely have to question you know its its value in our food chain and and, and, and if that's the right way to be doing things so that's that's what kind of first made me real really see what what um, you know industrial scale aqua farming can, can cause to a landscape sure i mean what an epic trip i i would like to say i'm jealous but obviously you were expecting something outstandingly stunningly beautiful which it was but then it was taunted by this this moment that you had on the shoreline i just wonder as a as a business as someone who's created a business all around purpose how do you go about communicating it to inspire and engage and get people to do. How do you use communi communication as a tool to do that? Well, I guess you'd expect me to say that I'm a whiz on social media or something, but um, <laughs> I am certainly certainly not. And to be honest, I think when I reflect on the types and channels of communication that resonate with me, it's it's all about you know the doing. It's about you know the hands-on nature of of leading from the front and you know basically you know, tackling a problem as you see it in the best way you can to leave a positive outcome. I mean, I mean, there's, there's things that annoy all of us and there's things that um, wind us all up, isn't there? And as we, as, as we all know, or as we discover, the only way to really address them in any satisfactory way is to actually get hands on with it and 
<laughs> do it yourself. So hundreds. Yeah. So I think you know the way that the way that we've communicated what we what we do is is literally by by getting out and doing it first and foremost, um, rather than just you know presenting a a kind of plan and saying this is what sure. we plan to do. We just we just went out and started doing it, and then sort of the plan, as it were, fell into place as a result of doing it, if that makes sense. And I think the communication sure. followed from that. And I, and I guess that a lot of what happens around you and your business is really a lot of word of mouth, right? Yeah, sure, I guess it is. I mean, we, we do work very locally when we started it. And, you know, the trigger point for starting it was South. I was in South Wales with my family and we spend a lot of time in that area. And that was the trigger point. And I assumed that we'd be working sort of Southwest Peninsula, South Wales, maybe even further afield. Mm. I didn't understand mm. the scale of the problem at that stage. As it happens, you know, four and a half years later, we basically now operate between the Tamar in Plymouth to Tor Bay, which is not a huge piece of coastline. But we've been busy full time just managing the plastic pollution that washes up on that section of coast, let alone tackling the rest of it. And how how do you how do you make this a full time situation? Do you have supporters? Yes, we do. Yeah. yeah, we again, I suppose, have been very fortunate in some respects. But again, you know, it's kind of by design. So you have to be mindful that you know that what you're doing is is resonating and it has to work. It has to obviously be viable one way or another. So when we first started, I, I did start. I did try and start it two years prior to when we actually physically started it, but. The model kind of relied on sponsorship at the time, and I didn't go at it bullet a gate. It certainly wasn't, you know, my my I, I wasn't. It was I was sort of putting the idea out there, and at the time I chatted to a few folk, and they said, "Yeah, I kind of understand, you know, where you're coming from." But how big a problem is it? I mean, is this something? Is this a, a problem that can go away, or is it is it something? And I at the time again, I wasn't entirely sure how big a problem it was. I I was just very sure that it was annoying me intensely, and I knew I had to do something about it. Then, of course, Blue Planet came along, and this is Blue Planet, as I'm sure many other organisations like ours will tell you, was absolutely a tipping point, a positive tipping point in, in that everybody saw what was going on suddenly in their living rooms. And, you know, our phone started to ring after the first few episodes of Blue Planet, certainly the, the last one. That, that, was, that was, you know, a, 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 an important point for us. By that time, we already had our boat and we were sort of... I was just sort of doing doing the thing and trying to work out how to you know pay for it afterwards. But then we realised that we we were onto something and people were interested and and um, we had these very opportune little spaces on the side of the boat. And I thought, ah, oh, they'd be perfect for sponsors. You know, we could put people's names on there. And I see that you. I, I noticed that you were also working with the team from the Seahorse. Yes. Yeah, so Mitch Talks is a. Fantastic guy. He's a great entrepreneur and he runs a very successful business in, in Rockfish and, and the Seahorse and, and, and the Seafood at Home business now as well. And Mitch was the second or third person I went to see with the idea of having a, you know, an operational boat that was focused, dedicated to clearing up plastic pollution. And um, I actually put a little model, a Lego model of a boat in a, I think it was like a Land Rover, pulling the boat. I'd stuck a little Rockfish sign on the side of it. <laughs> So it was so much easier to explain what we were getting at. And I think inside the boat, in fact, there is a little, there's a turtle and I'd wrap some cellophane around its neck to, um, you know, to provide an example of, of what we're talking about. 
So Mitch was was fantastic. He was very supportive from the word go. And Mitch now sits on the board of the Devon Environment Foundation and uh, Rockfish contribute to lots of the great work that the foundation allow people to do. So they, they help um, support grassroots, you know, environmental um, and um, regenerative activities in nature. So, you know, it, yeah, it's all, it's, it's all been fantastic. And of course, you know, rock, Rockfish obviously are, are a seafood focused organization therefore they recognize that you know catching seafood has has an environmental impact so tell me gary i mean you are doing so many amazing things i have to say but in your world is there anything that you wish that you were doing that you're not well geez do you know what i could i could reel off a list of things but you know the horrible truth of it is every time i think of something i'd you know perhaps like to be doing i then of course immediately question the merit in it or the environmental impact of doing it or whatever which is, which is wise. yeah it, well it is wise and it and it's i guess it's the, the responsible thing to do and i think you know that that is the point that we're at now we we do have to take responsibility and frankly it you know it it sucks doesn't it having to, having to be responsible is is something we all grow into and you know at some oh. point in our lives acknowledge that there is no <laughs> There's no getting away from it as, as no, boring as it sometimes no can be, but there is no hiding exactly. And I think, you know, we've got to try and figure out a way of, of properly taking responsibility for all of our actions, but also making sure that we don't lose sight of, you know, the joys of being alive as well. Sure. Um, but it's, it's a really tough balance, isn't it? Because I think we've become so used to the joys of our lives being imported or exporting ourselves somewhere else via, a, you know, a jet engine um and and i think we 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 perhaps measure our measure the pleasure by the you know number of miles away it is from our home or whatever it might be but um so i i mean i know a lot of folk have this sort of internal struggle um others don't have a struggle with it at all which which you know i i find quite interesting but mm. yeah so most of the fun things i i would potentially like to be to be doing um <laughs> would involve <laughs> copious amounts of traveling and climbing mountains and skiing back down them and that sort of thing and sure. um so yeah but but there's, there's nothing i'd rather be doing you know professionally right now um, sure. okay um so you obviously you're you're very involved with waste and waste management so as an agency we actually look after a number of waste management businesses and help them communicate their business the outside world I just wonder, in your experience, what is the most difficult? Actually, what is the most difficult um, material to recycle, and what could we do, be doing differently with it? Sure. So, well, as you know, if, you know from your interactions with the industry, it's it's you know it's a big industry, it's mm. complicated, you know, and I guess the thing to acknowledge is that it's it's a commercial industry. It's a it's a you know a, a profit seeking vehicle it's an essential industry of course but ultimately it's driven by the same kind of economic drivers as you know a, a car manufacturer or a supermarket they, they they seek to make profit to fulfill their obligations to their shareholders and their employees etc so basically you know the the world market for whatever commodity you might be talking about be aluminium steel cardboard plastic whatever it's it, it's all driven by 
by demand. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, it's a simple model. You know, we all know how that works. Um, but, but, but recycling is, is, is very difficult. It's, you know, yeah. it's, um, it's a messy job. Cross-contamination is, is the industry's biggest issue as, as far as I'm aware. And I've, I've witnessed it and I've been told that, you know, from experts. And, you know, the, issue, the issues we have are those very simply of too many different types of material um, in, in two different, in, in far too wide a variant of condition and, and what mm-hmm. have you to, to be easily recycled. I mean, it's easy to recycle something that's made of one easily identifiable material that's clean and dry. Mm. Um, if that's in a receptacle covered in pizza and, you know, with a different coloured lid of, of a different type of plastic and wrapped in cellophane and in a polystyrene box and all the rest of it, then it becomes inordinately difficult to separate those materials for any sort of meaningful recycling use. So, yeah, I mean, n- nailing one particular thing that's incredibly difficult to recycle is quite hard, but, but basically mm-hmm. any, anything that's not clean, si- single material dry and sorted properly is is hard to recycle are there any well-being benefits to becoming a volunteer at till the coast is clear yes there certainly are it's um it's amazing the feedback we get from the guys who join us regularly at how much better they feel a because they're contributing to something that they see value in you know they're they leave having achieved something and they can see a positive change in, in nature, but also because, of course, they're outside, fresh air, um, great light, um, beautiful scenery. And then there's the interaction with the other volunteers, which is arguably the most important thing, really. So people get to, you know, chat and chew the fat and talk politics or talk about, you know, rubbish if they want to. But, um, yeah, there's absolutely no doubt. It's very well documented now that that being outside, doing something positive with other like-minded folk is is hugely beneficial to your well-being um physically mentally and every other way possible so yeah big yes to that what does the future look like for till the case is clear so the future looks really exciting i think for us and at this point we're in in our history in the sense that you know there's, there's now, um, despite all the other things we disagree on as, as human beings and things, that there now is, in my opinion at least, some form of consensus around the fact that the climate's changing incredibly rapidly and it's going to have effects on all of us. Now, you can debate till the cows come home as to the reasons for those changes, and that's definitely not a chat for now, but what's, what's definitely undebatable, in my opinion, is that things are changing very rapidly and that it is going to affect us all, and therefore we all do need to... Um, pull together and acknowledge that and that that seems to be what I'm experiencing with with our volunteers and folk we're working with which is you know a really positive thing to come out come out of what you know on the face of it is is not not great at all really um so yeah we've got lots of lots of great plans we've got plenty of other projects we're still delivering that have been delayed for various reasons including including the pandemic and all the rest of it but um we're going to continue with our, you know, plastic pollution cleanup operation, which is the backbone of what we do, and we're going to increase our increase our efforts to raise awareness and with prevention and helping businesses businesses and organisations, you know, move to a more circular model so that they're, you know, making a positive impact rather than a neg- negative impact and you know 
moving from a linear model to a circular one is, I think, really important sure. and a big part of that. Um, we've got several sort of side projects running as well. The most exciting and um, popular one, I suppose, is our Force for Nature programme, and that's our conservation and regeneration volunteers groups who we tend to send out on Wednesdays and Thursdays to help with projects that are either getting off the ground or already running that need help with tree planting and hedgerow expansion and wildflower meadow planting and all manner of things. In fact, today we've just come from a, a small holding and we've been planting or building huel beds, which are, you know, special um, sort of no-dig vegetable growing beds that, that uh, yeah, are just a, a great a great way of going about doing that. So that's that's all really exciting and uh, looking forward to it. Brilliant. Thanks, Gary. And so as a final question, and this is one we always finish up on, um, what is your morning routine, Gary? Okay, so I guess it depends whether it's midweek or weekends, but we'll go for the midweek because obviously that's the larger part of the week. Yes. So no, I'm a pretty early riser. I, I try and be up and, you know, doing stuff by by half past six and I, I get the porridge wow. on, take the dog out for 25 minutes or so, get some fresh air. Then, um, this all sounds a bit hippie, but I do like to get my, my little stretching routine in. Um, it's pretty, pretty physical work that we do and I find it makes a massive difference when, you, when you're um, north, north mm. of 50 um, to getting, <laughs> getting those joints and muscles working. And um, yeah, then it's you know, a case of cracking on really. Absolutely. And um, Gary, it, for the listener, would you just be able to let us know um, where people can find you if they want to follow up and find out more? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Yeah, I apologise. for we're, we're not the best at social media and our web presence is pretty behind um, where it should be, I'm afraid. But you can go to all the W's till the coast is clear.co.uk which is obviously our website and there's links there for newsletter and, and contact. But we're most active on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, which is at Till Coast Clear, at Till Coast Clear, I believe on both of those. And we run our volunteer groups via WhatsApp, which just is a really simple and, and um, effective way of communicating with, you know, quite a large group of people. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gary. Really, really great chat. I really enjoyed every minute. And till the next time. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having us.